All right, so I'm going to assume that you guys are done with those, those two announcements. Uh, let me do one other thing before we get started. If you're a senior in the room, raise your hand. If you're a senior, raise your hand. Now, keep your hand raised. Um, what I'm going to do, I'm going to have um, uh, Mr. Fletcher, you want to grab those, those pieces of paper and, and grab a partner as well and pass those out. If you're a senior, keep your hand up. Um, especially keep it up if you know or don't know if your parents received a letter talking about senior blessing. Now, some of you guys know your parents got that letter and they came to the meeting last Sunday. If that's the case, then put your hand down. But if you're not sure if they got the letter, keep your hand raised. If you're not sure, keep your hand raised so we can get those out to you that are seniors. So three at the back. And I think that should cover it, I believe. Make sure you guys give that to your parents. And the first uh, Wednesday of May, we will have an event here called Senior Blessing where your parents are involved in that. So make sure they get that letter um, as soon as possible. So was there a prom last night? Which prom took place last night? CDCS? And Homeschool? And Holland? And Moody? I don't know anybody that goes to Moody, but Holland, Homeschool, and CDCS. So I want to tell you guys a story about my son and prom. Because last night, here's what happened. I had some of my interns over last night for dinner, and so I went to go to Miller's Barbecue to get pick up the dinner, right? And I'm waiting there in Miller's Barbecue, and, um, and this couple, prom couple comes in. She has like a really sort of flowing pink dress, and he's got his little, you know, sort of like white colored tuxedo and a pink tie to match the pink dress. And they walk into Miller's and they sit down. And uh, Which, by the way, I just want to take a survey question. Um, this is for the ladies. So if, if your man takes you to Miller's Barbecue for the prom date, raise your hand if that is a win. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if that is a fail. Raise, if, is that a fail? Okay. So I just want to know, but we're about a third said yes. So here's what happened. So um, they sit down, and then um, my son is kind of looking at them, because my son realizes that they don't really match the flavor of the restaurant. Like, he realizes that this couple looks very different than what everyone else is dressed like in Miller's Barbecue. So it starts, his mind starts wondering, and he starts asking questions. So we're walking out of Miller's, and he's like, he's like, Daddy, what, what were those people, were they like in a wedding or something? And I said, no, no, that's prom. And he goes, what's prom? And I said, well, it's in high school, and um, upperclassmen get to go. And, and so a you know, guy asks a girl a prom. It's a dance. And he goes, well, are they in love with each other? And I'm like, well, maybe, but maybe not. I said, sometimes they go as friends, but sometimes they might love each other. But I don't know about that couple. And so um, then he starts asking questions. He's kind of thinking in the backseat of the car, just ruminating on what I said. And he goes, well, I have to go to prom when I get to high school. And I said, well, no, you don't, you don't have to. It's not a requirement. And he goes, I'm not going to prom. And I'm like, well, you're only seven, so just chill, all right? Yeah, so, um, so he's, he's uh, being around high schoolers is forcing him to sort of evaluate um, the future of his life. So I want to thank you guys for, um, for helping me out with that. Um, 
So today we are continuing our series on the seven churches of Revelation. And um, if you turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at verse 8 in a moment. I want to just recapture the purpose of this series for you so you know why we're doing it, what we're doing with it. We've actually had, I think, three Sundays off from this series. So to recap a few things, we are doing this series every every spring I like to do a um, several weeks that's really geared towards our graduating seniors, but of course it applies to everyone else in the room. And so this, uh, this series is really no different. So um, we talked um, at the beginning part of the series that there are seven churches um, that Jesus is speaking to in the first three chapters of Revelation. And Jesus has some really some encouraging words, but also some rebuke for some of these churches in, in this part of Turkey, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And so Jesus has some, some words, at times some harsh words for these churches. And if you look at each church, each church has like a different personality to it. And so I want us to, to look at each church and, and understand and, and acknowledge that each one of these churches, as they struggle with their sins, their different sin issues, as a result of their each church's personality... I want us, each of us, to connect ourselves to these churches and acknowledge that we fall into the same kind of temptation that they fell into, and, um, and we are also open to the same rebuke that Jesus is giving to these churches in this part of the world. And so we looked, um, the first week was like an intro week, the second week was a week talking about the church at Ephesus, and Ephesus was known for what? What was Ephesus known for? Quick review being evil. Who said that? Okay. Um, sure. Uh, what were they known for? Anybody remember? It's like been like three weeks ago. I don't expect you to remember, but I want to make you feel stupid right now, so I'll just wait. Something about lampstands. All right, so let me just recap. So you remember they were, they were full of like doctrine and, and sound doctrine, and they had the right beliefs, but they lacked what? Love. They lacked love. And so Jesus rebukes the church in Ephesus. So today we come to the church of Smyrna. Say Smyrna with me. Just Smyrna. It's a great, um, great, great word. So I want to show you a map of this part of the world so you can see what we're talking about. I know you guys probably can't read that, but um, get some glasses. So uh, if you look at to the, to the west there in the yellow... These are the seven churches where they're located in um, this part of the world. And Smyrna is like all the way over to the left-hand side on the coast, close to the coast, close to Ephesus. And, and so there's the seven churches that we're talking about. We're on church number two and the church at Smyrna. So look with me in Revelation chapter 2, verses, verse 8. We'll start in verse 8. It says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So this is Jesus speaking. I want you to notice his emphasis. He's putting his emphasis on his own death and his own resurrection. This is important because I think what Jesus does in this part of Revelation is he, he reminds them about a certain aspect of himself that sort of ties into the dilemma the church is facing. And so this church is facing suffering. They're facing possibly even death. And so Jesus immediately reminds them about his own death in his own resurrection, he says, the one, me, who died and came to life. And so um, 
These Christians are being threatened with death um, as a result of their faith. And so Christ is reminding them about his own resurrection, his own life and resurrection as a result of their situation. Now, I want to show you the modern-day city of Smyrna because this is actually still a city. It's actually a really big city now, and it's called the city of Izmir in Turkey. So go to my next slide. This is what modern-day Smyrna looks like. It's a beautiful city. I've never actually seen a picture of this until I looked it up. But beautiful city on the coast. And this city has four million people now. So this was ancient um, used to be called Smyrna, now it's called Izmir, and it is a beautiful coastal city, but even back then, it still had paved streets, it had a library, it had a gymnasium, not sure what a gymnasium would have back then, but, um, but they had a gymnasium, and you guys may not know this, but the country of Turkey and the city of Izmir, the country of Turkey is the most dark country spiritually on the face of the earth. It's, the, it's the, the least churched country in the world today. So I want you to just watch. I want, you to, I want this to scare you a little bit. Because this was one of the churches, one of the prime churches in that day. And here we are 2,000 years later. And the place where these seven churches are located. In fact, Smyrna is the only city that still has some semblance of a church out of these seven cities that we're talking about in this series. The only one. The entire country of Turkey is the darkest country spiritually on the face of the earth. This was part of the center of the church back then, 2,000 years ago. And so I want this to scare you a little bit, because I think we have to understand that we can't take for granted that things are just always going to be the way that they are. We can't just expect, that. yeah, yeah, Texas, we're... We're so Christianized. We're so churched in Texas. And that's just the way it is. That's the way it's always going to be. Because that might not always be the way that it is where you and I live. And so um, out of the seven cities, this is the only one that still has a church. And I read this week that there are only two churches. So just do the math with me. Four million people. There are only two churches that have more than 100 people in a city of 4 million people. Only two. Only two. It's astounding. I can't even do the percentage of that. Like what percentage of people we would say are even believers in that city or even in that country. And so um, even though the church is small, so there's still a church there in Smyrna today or in Izmir, Turkey today, but even though the church is small, imagine being in that city today and picking up the Bible and reading about Jesus speaking to the church in Smyrna, knowing it's your city. Just imagine how cool that would be, like to open the Bible and say, to be in Izmir, Turkey today, and say, this is the church. This is the church. We are in the church that Jesus is referring to and talking about. Imagine opening up your Bible and seeing Jesus saying the words to the church in Temple, Texas, right? This shows Jesus Christ cares deeply about these seven churches, and he wants to to speak to them and encourage them. So I want you to look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. 
Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So I want to give you just a a background of what's happening in this church. The church in Smyrna is ultimately under the control of Rome. Rome is oppressive, and Roman leaders, the Caesars in that day, would demand worship. They had a saying, and it was, Caesar is Lord. This is why it was such a big deal whenever Jesus came along and said, when they said Jesus is Lord, when people said Jesus is Lord, this was a huge deal in that day. Because to say Jesus is Lord, you are denying that Caesar is Lord. And Caesar was not like a president. In our country today, we would never say that we, at least not out loud, that we worship the president. Now, some people might, but we know that's not really part of the package with politics. We know that we elect this person, they have a job, and they try to do it, and then we vote them out of office and find somebody new. But with, with, with Caesar, it was they were not just a leader like a king. They were also seen as a god. They were worshipped as a god. And so... Political life and rule and reign, all that was tied into religion. And so people would say, Caesar is Lord. This was a political and a religious statement. And to say that he's, and to not say he's Lord is really to defy the empire and could get you in a lot of trouble in that day. So they had to swear allegiance to um, Caesar, but they also had to offer some sacrifices to Caesar. Now this was not like, bring a lamb or a goat like the Israelites would and sacrifice them on an altar. This was once a year as a citizen of Rome, you're required to get some incense. Not sure it was in that incense. I'm not going to ask. But there was some incense, and you had to go burn incense on an altar to pay honor to Caesar. And then as a result of that, you would get a certificate saying that you had done so once a year. This was the empire's way of just keeping everyone in line Everyone in check, making sure no one is having thoughts of rebelling, rebelling against the empire and against Caesar. And so here's what happened, though. Whenever the Romans were in charge of this part of the world, and the Jews are living under Roman oppression, to keep peace with the Jews, the Romans would let the Jews worship their God in peace as long as they didn't stir up any trouble. And so when Christianity came along, the Romans didn't really know um, what, who these new people were. They saw it as like a weird Jewish um, group. And so they saw it as like under the Jewish religion, and so they didn't bother the Christians at first. But once the Jews began to have strife and disagreement about who Jesus was with um, the Christians, the Jews then sold out the Christians to the Romans and basically said, they're defying your empire. And so when the Jews sold the Christians out to the empire the Christians in that part of the world began to experience a battle on two fronts. They experienced a battle against the Jews, but now also against the Romans. And so the Romans are now after the Christians in this part of the world. And so in verse 9, I want you to watch this. Jesus says the words. He says, I know. I know your tribulation. I know exactly what you are experiencing. You can imagine that they felt abandoned. They felt like 
Okay, where's God? Where's Jesus? We're, we're obeying Jesus. We're worshiping Christ. We're following Christ. And yet we're undergoing tribulation and trial and suffering as a result of our obedience. And so I think Jesus says, his first words are, I know. I know. And this jumped out to me because when you think about Jesus is saying those words, these people had to wonder, does he? Does he know our situation? Because if he knew our situation, I would think it'd be different. And I can't help but think that many of you have asked the same question, like whatever trial, tribulation, suffering you're going through, whether it's family-related, whether it is faith-related, whether it is um, other-related, that you've asked the same question. You've asked the question of, you know, I don't think God even knows about this. Because if he knew about this, then he would do something about this. And some of you might think to yourself, well, I know that he knows because he's God. And that might even lead to a bigger struggle for you because you know that he knows. And you ask yourself the question, well, why isn't he doing anything about it? Why isn't he doing anything to change my circumstances? Because I know he's God. I know he knows what's going on here. But why is he doing nothing to change my circumstances? And so the people that are in Smyrna, the Christians that are in Smyrna, they have to be asking the same question. We're suffering for doing what's right. And that's not right. And so Jesus, his first words, I think, are words of comfort. I know your tribulation. I know your suffering. And um, I'm aware of it. I'm still God. I'm still on the throne. And so he reminds them that he knows exactly what they are going through. And these are supposed to be words of comfort for them. These people are suffering for their faith. They're suffering for obedience. This verse says that they're poor. This means financially poor. But they are rich, meaning spiritually rich. Because sometimes being a Christian can actually hurt you socially and financially. This may not be as common in our country, but in that time, they were being hurt socially and financially because of their faith in Christ. So Jews, Gentiles, not going to do business with a Christian because we want them to suffer. We're going to do everything we can to shut down their business, to, to end their job, to end their career, whatever they're doing, so that they will have to suffer for being a Christian. And so this is where I want to just hone in for a moment, especially on my seniors, because if you are leaving here in a few months to go to college, this is huge for you. This is huge. Because you are going to be tempted to compromise, just like you're tempted to compromise here, you'll be tempted to compromise even more once you walk out of here and go on campus somewhere. You'll be tempted to compromise for the sake of status, for the sake of financial gain, You'll be tempted to leave Christ behind so that you can gain what the world has to offer. And this is, this is huge because you're about to walk into a world. Listen, you're about to walk into a world where the liar, the cheat, the, the thief, the unethical person, at least in our world, very often makes a ton of money. And when someone sells out and sells their soul, so to speak, this is often the kind of person who um, gets really rich. It's just the way things are set up in our society. Now, it doesn't always happen that way. It doesn't always happen that way, but sometimes it does. 
And on the other end of the spectrum, it's very often that the Christian, the person who's trying to follow Jesus, is the person that has a really tough time paying the bills, and a really tough time socially, and a really tough time um, people seeing them with respect and, and giving them some kind of social standing. And so I saw this um, firsthand whenever I was, I was in college and I was working this job. I was working as a waiter, try, trying to pay bills, trying to make money. And uh, there was this house um, in the middle of Arlington that I would drive by on the way to work. And this house sat on the corner. And it was like an L-shaped house. It was like right up against the corner of the street. And you could see it was this really nice house. It was a white house, white uh, painted brick. And um, there was like a fence around the back part of the house. And you could see this iron fence. And you could see into this guy's um, like open garage. And you could tell there were security cameras. This is a nice place. And this guy had like um, Rolls Royce. He had Porsche. Like he had the nicest cars. I'm looking at this guy going like, what in the world does this guy do? I mean, the house wasn't huge, but it was just this really ornate, awesome-looking home. And I would drive by that house every day on the way to work just wondering, what does this guy do for a living? And then one day someone told me. They said, this guy owns a bunch of strip clubs. And I'm thinking to myself, really? This guy, so he's made his money off of sexual exploitation. And he's doing everything wrong. He's, he's disobeying God in every way. And yet he has all this money. And yet I'm trying to follow Christ and follow Jesus. And, and I'm working my fingers to the bone. I'm going to school. I'm, I'm mentoring high school students. And yet I can barely pay my bills. And I have to admit, I, I was bitter. I was bitter at just the way the world works sometimes. And so for those that are heading off from here, this is the world you're about to step into. A place where very often Christians are pushed to the margins and they don't have, you don't reap financial gain or status gain based on your Christianity. And this is where the people were at in the city of Smyrna. And so Jesus tells them, he says, don't fear. He says, don't fear what you're about to suffer. And so you can imagine this, the, the, the uh, Smyrna Christians are probably like, well, wait a second, I thought we were already suffering. You're, you're telling us there's more suffering to come? And Jesus says, yes, there's more suffering to come. And he lays out his case for them. And he says, some of you guys are going to get thrown in jail. And when he says 10 days, this does not mean you get thrown in jail and then 10 days you're out, you're free to go. This means like 10 days until you die. This means 10 days until you're executed. So Jesus, this is confusing, but Jesus, he's comforting them with these words. This sounds weird, I know. But he says, I know your situation, but be careful, it's about to get worse. It's about to get worse. There's going to be more suffering to come. And what he says, I think, at the very end is so profound because he gives them a promise. He says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This means the final judgment. This means eternal separation from God. This means hell. And he gives them hope in his promise, saying, you, you stay with me through the end of this suffering, and you can hang on to my promise. You can hang on to my promise and know that this death you're about to die is not the final death. This is not the one that matters. And so he brings great comfort to these 
people um, as he says these words. I want you guys to discuss in your, uh, your tables uh, questions one through three. Go ahead and discuss the first three questions at your tables. All right, I want to pick up our discussion, and we'll have some more discussion here at the end. But obviously, you and I, we live in a culture, we live in a world that is becoming increasingly more and more hostile towards Christianity and the idea of Jesus. And I don't say that. You're never going to hear me say, and if you ever do, then you confront me on this, but you'll never hear me say on this stage or anywhere else that um, Christians should just cry and moan about how the unbelieving culture treats them. Because so often I see Christians have this response of, you know, why don't they love us? And I want to say, well, because the Bible says they're not going to. The Bible actually says that. Like, the, the world's not going to like you because you're a Christian. Because of me, Jesus, the world's not going to like you. It gives us that warning 2,000 years ago. And here we are going, what in the world? Why don't they love us? And so I'm not crying about that. We should never moan and cry about those kinds of things. But I still think you have to understand that they do, they are hostile against our faith, because in order to reach them, you have to understand them. And that's my goal in, in, in giving this next uh, piece to you here. So I want you to look at the screen. I've got um, a book I have called Center Church by Tim Keller. It's a great book. It's a real big textbook. I love it. Um, it's real nerdy, too. And, uh, but he gives the churches four seasons in different parts of the world. Here's, here's the way he lays it out. He says, you have to understand as a church, if you're in summer, winter, autumn, or what's the fourth season? Spring. Yes. There we go. You can tell I'm awake this morning. Congratulations to me. Um, so uh, church is four seasons. First is winter. The church faces hostility from culture, is weak or underground, sees very limited evangelistic fruit. This is what you would see in Islamic countries. Well, there's this very little evangelistic fruit. I have friends that are going to the United Arab Emirates in July. And they're going to be missionaries. And I get to go see them in November in that part of the world. I'm excited to go see them. But in that country, there are millions of people. It's illegal to convert to Christianity. Now, you can be a Christian there. It's not as extreme as some Muslim countries. But the UAE is actually fairly tolerant in a way, in a weird way. You can be a Christian there, but you can't convert to Christianity. So he's going to a country where it's not even legal for people he's trying to reach to convert to the faith he's trying to convert them to. So this is where many Islamic countries find themselves. The next season he describes is the season of, um, what's the next one here put on the screen? Spring. Church is embattled but growing, and signs of life are beginning to break through. And this is what you see in China, where the church is, is having a lot of fruit, but it's still somewhat frowned upon and frowned upon by the government and some of the culture to be a Christian. The next season he describes is summer. This is the church is highly regarded in public square, and Christians are involved at, every, at the center of cultural production. This is what you would see in parts of South America and sub-Saharan Africa. And the church is still pretty closely tied to what's happening in the country. And then the last place he describes is autumn, fall. Influence of the church is declining, and believers are increasingly marginalized in a post-Christian context. This is what you would use to describe 
much of Europe and parts of North America where we live. Now, of course, in the U.S., it's not completely like this, but I'm just going to tell you that um, the place that you and I live in right now, it might feel like summer where things are still just, you know, doing well, but we are quickly heading towards fall. We are quickly heading that direction where the church is becoming more and more marginalized and losing influence um, in the culture. And you would say it's already happened in a place like the Northeast, the Northwest. In the South, there are pockets of hostility, but you also find some places where the church is still doing okay. And so um, it's, it's hard for us, for those that live in the South here, it's hard for us to imagine um, the Christians in Smyrna and their situation because um, we don't have that kind of like open hostility here where we live. But some parts of our nation, it actually helps to be a Christian. And I was reminded of this, whenever you've seen those, have you guys seen those, um, those automotive shops? Put, put my next picture on the screen here. They're called uh, Christian Brothers Automotive. Have you guys seen those around just Texas and other parts of the U.S.? And when I first saw that, I thought, that is the weirdest thing. Like, that's, this is kind of cool, but like, it's also kind of weird. Like, they put that on the, the name of the place. And there are lots of locations. If you Google up their locations, guess where most of them are? In the South. Right along the South. Because in the South, it's still beneficial for you financially and somewhat socially to say you're a Christian. When they put the name Christian on that garage, what are they trying to communicate? They're trying to communicate, we're not going to rip you off. We've got integrity. And so at least in parts of the U.S., that communicates that kind of thing. Would it be wise in Texas to put Islamic Brothers Automotive? Probably not. Because many Texans are still kind of like bigoted, right? We still have some issues there. And so it may not be wise to use that word, but in where we live, um, this might actually help business. Let me remind you, this was not the situation in Smyrna. In fact, it was the opposite situation. It would actually hinder someone to say they're a Christian, financially and also socially. And so I want you to, um, I want to ask a question here. What can we learn from the church in Smyrna. When we look at this church, we see people that are committed to Christ and they're committed to the church no matter what. And this is one of the only churches out of these seven that Jesus doesn't backhand, doesn't rebuke, because he's proud of them. He's, he, he gives no rebuke. Doesn't mean that we don't get a rebuke as we watch them, because we can look at our lives and say, how are we not living in the way that they were living in their city of Smyrna. And so, look at this church. We see them committed to Christ. We see them committed to the church no matter what. And here's where this, I think, really convicts me and really convicts us. Because you and I, for the most part, are only committed to the church and to Jesus when it's convenient. You and I are only committed to Christ and to his church when it's easy, or at least easier, when it's convenient for us. And so this is where we can at least get rebuked a little bit, um, even though Christ didn't rebuke them. We can be rebuked um, just by default as we look at this church in the city of Smyrna. Because let's be honest, for some of us, at least in our culture here in Texas, um, being a Christian, saying you're a Christian, going to church is still somewhat beneficial to you socially. If you're a businessman, if, you, if you're trying to meet people, 
coming to the church is actually a pretty good deal. Like you meet people and like, hey, they know you're a Christian. Like they're going to start using your business for stuff. It can actually benefit you financially. This was not the situation in Smyrna. And so, but again, I want to focus on the seniors that are about to leave in a few months, a couple months. What's going to happen to you when it's no longer that way? When you walk out these doors, what's going to happen to you when it's no longer beneficial financially and socially to say you're a Christian? What decision are you going to make? Are you going to stay committed to Christ, stay committed to the church? Or is that when you jump ship and say, you know what? It's not for me. It's not for me. And so um, I want to um, just ask some questions here. Many years ago, there was a researcher named Robert Bella who was trying to answer a question. He was trying to answer the question, what causes Americans to make commitments? Why is it that Americans commit to things? And here's what he came up with. A couple of reasons. Number one, he said, Americans will only commit to things if this first question is answered in the affirmative. And the question is, what's in it for me? If I make this commitment, what will I receive in return that will benefit my life? And this is how many Christians approach the question of, do I want to become a Christian? Underneath that question, they're going to be asking the question, okay, well, what's in that for me? What am I going, what benefits, how will it improve my life if I become a Christian? If I say I want to follow Christ and join a church, how's that going to benefit me? The next question he says that many Americans ask before they make any commitment is, if I make this commitment, how will I feel? Will I feel better because I have placed myself in this situation or relationship? This is true of our faith. It's true of how we view marriage. It's true of how we view friendship. And this is how many of us live our lives, especially here in the U.S. And so here's what's interesting, though. He said in the last 75 years, there's been this shift in our culture with how we view commitment, how we view these kinds of things. And he used this example. He's the example of the U.S. Army. Many years ago in World War I, World War II, what sign did they use? What image did they use to recruit? You know the person? Uncle Sam. So Uncle Sam said, I want you for U.S. Army. Or some sign said, I need you. We need you. And that's all it said. And people are signing up in droves because they feel this sort of corporate responsibility of, you know, to my nation. I need to fight for my nation. I need to fight for the world. And so all they had to do was say, I need you. I want you. We need you. We want you for U.S. Army. And they would go sign up. Now today, what is the Army slogan? You know what it is. What is the Army slogan? It's be all you can be. Go to my next slide. Every advertisement for the Army says, be all you can be. Do you see the shift here? The shift is now focused on the individual. It's focused on you. It's, hey, come join us. Not just for the sake of the mission, not just for the sake of the country, but come join us so we can make you all you were meant to be. It's now focused on the person, the individual. Hey, well, what if I join the army, what am I going to get out of it? It's like, what's in it for me? And so we've kind of lost this sense of 
you know, corporate identity and this sense of like a responsibility towards this bigger picture is the point he's trying to make. And I think the same thing is true um, how we see Christ in the church because so often we try to pitch Jesus and the gospel like it's some commodity. Come to Jesus, come to church, here's the gospel, believe in the gospel. Why so he'll improve your life? And here's the funny thing about the church in Smyrna. That was the farthest thing from the truth for them because Jesus did not improve their immediate circumstances. He actually brought more suffering because coming to Jesus for them meant that they got his suffering. They didn't just get Jesus. They also got his suffering. Many of them were put to death. And so I want to close this morning with a story of a of a man that you probably never heard of, but his name is Polycarp, and he was actually discipled by John, who wrote Revelation. And Polycarp was a leader. He was the leader of the church in Smyrna. So he's not mentioned in the Bible, but he is well documented. His death is well documented in other points of, uh, of ancient writings. And so Polycarp was a leader of the church in Smyrna, and it's, it's interesting to hear this passage and then know the story of this man, Polycarp. I want to just explain his story to you as we close this morning. So he was the church leader of Smyrna. He was found to be guilty as a Christian. And the Romans were going to put him to death and do it by burning him at the stake. And so here's the story of how this took place. Um, they took Polycarp, the church leader of Smyrna, as he entered the arena under armed guard. The stands were filled with an angry mob. Their shouts filled the air. Once inside the arena, the soldiers quickly brought Polycarp before the Roman proconsul. Polycarp, the leader of the church in Smyrna, was the last living link with the 12 apostles. He had studied under John, the apostle, the disciple of Jesus. As soon as the crowd learned this famous leader had been arrested, a loud cheer goes up from the arena. The proconsul tried to get Polycarp to deny Jesus. He said, swear by the fortune of Caesar, take the oath, and I will release you. Curse Christ. Reject Christ. Polycarp stood firm, and he said, for 86 years I have served the Lord Jesus Christ, and he never once wronged me. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The proconsul made threats at this point, and he said, I have wild beasts ready, and I will throw you to the wild beasts if you do not change your mind. Polycarp replied, let them come, for my purpose is unchangeable. And the proconsul said to him, if the wild beasts don't scare you, then I will burn you with fire. And this is Polycarp's response. He says, you threaten me with a fire which will burn for an hour, and then it will go out but you are ignorant of the fire of the future judgment of God, reserved for everlasting torment of the ungodly. But why do you delay? Bring on the beast or the fire or whatever you choose. You shall not move me to deny Christ, my Lord and my Savior. So when the proconsul saw that Polycarp would not recant, he sent the herald to proclaim three times in the middle of the stadium Polycarp has professed himself a Christian. This man yelled three times. And as soon as the crowd heard these words, the whole multitude of Gentiles and Jews 
furiously demanded he be burned alive. Immediately, a dry, dry wood was brought out and heaped on the center of the arena for a bonfire. When they were about to nail him to the stake, Polycarp said, because they would nail the person to the stake so they couldn't run away. If they used ropes, ropes would burn, they could run away. Polycarp said, instead of, instead of nailing me to the stake, he said, leave me as I am. He who gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me to remain still within the fire. So they agreed to this, and they simply tied his hands behind his back with a rope. And before he was killed, these are the words that he prayed before he was killed. He said, Lord God Almighty. Go to my next slide here. Lord God Almighty, Father of your blessed and beloved child, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received knowledge of you, God of angels and hosts and all creation, and of the whole race of the upright who live in your presence, I bless you that you have thought me worthy of this day and hour to be numbered among the martyrs and share in the cup of Christ for resurrection to eternal life, for soul and body in the incorruptibility of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to pray. He keeps on praying. He goes on to pray. Among them may I be accepted before you today as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. Just as you, the faithful and true God, have prepared and foreshown and brought about, for this reason and for all things I praise you, I bless you, I glorify you, through the eternal heavenly high priest Jesus Christ, your beloved child, through whom be glory to you, with him and the Holy Spirit, now and for the ages to come. Amen. And as soon as he prayed this prayer, when he uttered the word, Amen, the officers, the proconsul, lit the fire. The flames rose high above his body. But somehow, miraculously, this man Polycarp is not burned. Those who watched said, they said that he was in the midst of the fire, not as burning flesh, but somehow as gold and silver refined in a furnace. And we smelled such a sweet aroma as of incense or some other precious spice. These are eyewitnesses saying this. And since the fire did not hurt him, the executioner was then ordered to stab him in the chest with a sword. And as soon as he did, so much blood gushed out of Polycarp that the blood put out the fire. I'm going to pray for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being a God who who comforts us in suffering. Thank you for being a God who, in spite of trial, tribulation, especially as a result of following you, that you're a God who comforts us with the promise of that our first death is not the most important death, that it's really kind of null and void for those that are in Christ. And we thank you for that truth. We thank you for that promise. We thank you for someone like Polycarp who, who died um, bravely and valiantly for you. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to um, have the same kind of courage, the kind of courage that allows us to live boldly for you, to understand and love our culture, and want to see them also come to know you. We thank you so much for who you are. We pray this in your name. Amen. Go ahead and finish with your last few discussion questions.